Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Cindy and Chrissy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with changing the ideals and expectations of motherhood. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about. All while hanging with your mom friends. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. We are so excited to sit down with Dr. Cheryl Ziegler today. Dr. Ziegler has been a friend of Her Health Collective from the very beginning, and we are honored to have her serve as one of our 2021 Her Expert panelists. She is a therapist, a best-selling author of Mommy Burnout, a TEDx speaker, and the podcast host of the popular Dr. Cheryl's Pod Couch. Her insights on burnout, mental health, and parenting teens have been seen on over 100 news outlets, including The Katie Couric Show, The Jenny McCarthy Show, The Doctors, CNN, and so many more. Join us as we hear more about Dr. Ziegler's own personal story and what she's learned about mental health and parenting through working with countless families. We're going to be starting with some rapid fire questions. Dr. Ziegler, fill in the blank. Motherhood is? Trying. Trying. That's a good one. We haven't had that one yet. Elaborate. Tell us a little more about that. Oh, I'm like, I thought we were rapid firing. I'm ready to like. We are, but I just want to hear it because I'm like, she's a mental health expert and she says motherhood is trying. She even wrote books. I I think it does. I think, I feel like I use that word, not that I've ever answered it like this before, but it pulls at everything, right? It pulls at your patience. It pulls at your, at your love. It, it pulls at your ability to be empathic. Just it's trying. It's like, it's, you're always learning. You're a constant student. You, you never just, you never really have this. And when you think you do life will quickly show you, you don't. So you might feel like you're like coasting is not a word you ever associate with, I think motherhood or parenthood. And so I feel like, yes, it's trying. It's like every day there's something new. There's a new challenge. You're just always learning. So that's what made me think of that word. All right. Cleanest room in your house. Looking at your background, it's got to be your office. I, I know, but right here in command station, it's not. Yeah, my dining room. <laughs> I hardly eat, use it. Do you, oh, that was my question. Do you eat in there very much? Not that much. So it's no, you know what? I actually, my neighbors would be like, what are you talking about? We clean or we keep a really clean main floor. And my husband is now telling me that I have become really crazy about crumbs, which I have. I'm like on crumb patrol. And yesterday, I'm totally not exaggerating. Just <laughs> yesterday, my 13-year-old daughter said, mommy, I have never seen another mom clean as much as you clean. <laughs> my eight-year-old says, if they say, what does your mom do? He'll say, oh, she's a cooker and a cleaner. This, you have an eight-year-old? Yes. And eight, 11, 13. Crumbs. I agree. Crumbs on the floor, especially. I don't like stepping in them. Neither it's awful. And then like dragging them all over the house right? Cause I just see them like, they'll be like pretzel crumbs all over the floor. And then they just stand up and then they just drag them. Or yesterday they were making a smoothie and like, um, what was the fruit? I don't know, like raspberries, like sort of flew everywhere and they don't care. They'll like walk in them, step in them. I'm like, <laughs> bother you. And so that was what made them say yesterday. Like I kept cleaning up fruit. 
So now it was fruit, which is worse than even the crumbs off the floor. So I, I do keep a pretty good main floor. Um, you're not even asking me this, but I'm really bad. The thing I'm really bad at, I don't mind doing laundry and I don't mind folding it. I'm really bad at putting it away. Oh, I hate putting laundry away. Hor- I'm horrible at that. Oh my. So I'm, I'm I, not like a neat piler type of person. You don't mind folding yeah. it? I, nope. I lay them out so it's like in a flat pile and then I just don't get to folding it. I do the flat pile layout for hanging things. Like what, like this is the to be, that's what I mean. I'm a good piler. This is the to be hung pile. And this is the <laughs> folding pile. I'm very bad at it, especially in my own, my own bedroom because I have such little room. In some of the boys' spaces, there's still a lot of room. So I'm not jamming things. I'm better there. And my daughter's room is now getting to be like a little out of control. And she's 13. And she's in charge of her own laundry, which she tells me is a very stressful element of her life. She didn't have that. Her life would be so much better. Oh my gosh. The things that they worry about. <laughs> it's the size, the size of them, right? It's the size of them. Uh, what's bringing your life sanity right now? Peloton. I've heard good things. My sister oh, loves it. So good for your mental health. I can't even like, I can't, I could go on and on with this other, with this other story, but I actually wasn't sure that everybody felt like Peloton was so awesome for your mental health, but there are meditations. There are nature rides there for me. It's all about Robin. She's like my instructor. I love her so much. And you know, some days it's not about getting in like a huge workout. It's just this 20 or 30 minutes. Sometimes just, I put the music on really loud you, you really can pick, you can customize it so much that it's like could match your mood of what, what you want. And the instructors, you kind of know what you're getting with each one of them. They're very motivational. And I just love, I've never had like something in my house. I've never had like a home gym or a treadmill or something like that. It has been my pandemic savior for sure. It's been part of the equation. And you have the bike with it because I know some people do the workouts without the bike, right? Yes, I do have the bike with it, which we got November before the pandemic started. So I'm so happy about that. Yes, I know some people do that, but I just keep, yeah, I even keep my shoes clipped in. Like I just go to, it's so easy. I've done it in my pajamas before. (laughs) Just go slip in and get going. Like there's no fuss with it. So I love that too. That's brilliant. What do you look for in a mom friend? honesty, uh, vulnerability, just realness, just somebody I can be really real with. One thing you'd like to learn. Hmm. I'd like to learn how to use technology to continue to improve mental health. I think we have to embrace it and I want to keep learning. That's like an area I see my career going in is that intersection between, especially adolescents, they are on that tech how can we use it for good? And so that's something I'm really interested in lately. Very true. They're so driven by electronics. My 10-year-old is the same way. She doesn't even have a phone and she just, even the TV, it's just a source of, I don't know if it's escape. I know it is for me at periods of times, but huh. Yeah, I think for them. And the reason why I say that is because I also talk a lot about how addictive screens are and how they really truly are. And so long ago, I was talking about how they were, you know, games are created to be very Las Vegas casino style. And now I think that's very revealed. We know that sometimes when I was talking about it years ago, I felt like I was going a little rogue, but I think everybody knows now. And so how can we, how can we use not, not to get them addicted to like mental health type stuff, but how can we use it to learn to meditate, to truly practice deep breathing, 
to have an, another outlet, maybe when you're feeling angry or sad, or you need true connection. So I'm very interested in, I think that's, you know, part of the wave of the future is using, using technology for health, health in general, probably. But of course, my specific area would be mental health. That's a great answer. What are you reading or watching right now? I'm watching Shit's Creek. I'm finishing that up and I'm super sad because I don't ever want it to end. <laughs> did it take you a while to get into it? It did. Okay. Is I watched the first one and the second one and I thought like, I don't need this in my life. Like it's okay. And I think it just takes till the end of the third episode. And then you see this character development and this depth to every storyline. And it's so good. So I'm super, I'm truly in season six that I don't want it to end. That's what I'm watching. I am always reading so many books, but I, I have like multiple books going at a time, but I would say on my audibles, what I'm listening to is Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Really good. And right now I'm reading two books on loss and grief. I do a lot of nonfiction reading, but both of these, I am like in a grief myself. So somebody just told me about this book. It looks really, it's, it's old now, but how to survive the loss of a love. And it's written by a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and like maybe, I don't know, like a rabbi or a pastor or something like that. And it's, it's like this really short book on, I don't know, some really good tips, I guess. So I am just starting this right now. That's what I'm, that's what I'm reading right now. I and read that was, was a lot. That published recently or was that, you said it's no. an older book? It is older. Like, and it looks old. It feels old, even though I just got <laughs> it, but I'm going to look up the, the date because it really 1967. Oh, it is that old. <laughs> like it's that old on the front. It says 3 million copies in print. So at some point, or I guess since 1967, people have really, it's look like, look how little this book is, but it's I love really, those books with the short little chapters though. Yeah. You can just pick it up, absorb something and go about your day. Yes. And I guess every one of their lessons, which are just a page or two has a poem at the end. I don't know. So it might be good. Like, you know, for you are not alone. I I'm talking about this book as if I'm an expert on it. I'm not, but apparently why I was, somebody suggested this to me too. It's surviving the loss of a love. And they're saying like, there's no judgment on what the loss is though. It's not necessarily a loved one. It's like the, like, even if it was like a career or an opportunity or a loved one or a pet or, you know, like it applies to a lot of losses. So I'm just, of course, because of the pandemic and some of my own personal stuff, I've been really interested on processing loss and grief right now. It'd be great to get that insight on how to process through those feelings. Yeah. That sounds great. How do you picture your empty nest days? Well, now you've got three kiddos ranging in age from eight to 13. It's a little far off, isn't it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it's really, I taught, I'm starting to talk about this more or just like think about it more. Sometimes I never want to retire. I have no dreams, no fantasies. I never want to retire. I really never want to. I love what I do. I picture my older years, writing, consulting, traveling, of course, but I always, and my husband feels the same way, which is really funny. We both have no dreams or desires of retiring. And then recently one of my friends, so I'm from New York, but I live in Denver and you know, anybody who's listening from New York knows that like most people retire in Florida from New York. And so I just said to her, yeah, Florida feels a little too like the last stop for me. Like, I don't, I don't want that in my whole life ever. So I always want to, you know, be based out of Denver and maybe we just travel. Maybe we get like a longer term rental if we want to, of course my kids are young. Right. So all I can think is that if they don't live near us, then we'll 
traveling to see them. And so I want to be active. I want to be playing tennis. I want to be writing. I want to be learning. Riding always learning. Peloton. Be doing Peloton. <laughs> exactly. They'll be like, by then for sure, like the silver sneakers version of oh, Peloton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want, that's what I want. I want to stay um, really active. Dr. Fauci was being questioned by Congress. And he was so feisty and he knows his stuff so well. I'm like, you are my idol. I hope when I'm 80, 81, like I'm still like fighting for mental health rights or whatever I have to be doing, advocating. And he's so sharp too. So that's what I kind of strive for. I love that answer. And I think it's a testament to how passionate you are about your work and what you're doing. It is clearly your, your calling. So in your best selling book, Mommy Burnout, you start from the very beginning and mention various situations in your early life that shaped your professional path. Some of these ex experiences include being born to a teenage immigrant single mother, experiencing all levels of disadvantage, and receiving higher education after being awarded a full scholarship. Would you be willing to elaborate on these circumstances and share how they shape you? into who you are today. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Nobody really ever asked me so much about that, which is an interesting time right now, right? We have so much going on with equality and inequity and gender and race. There's so much going on. Like every day I have to take a breath from just everything that's happening in our country right now. But my story is you know, I guess it is interesting now when you're living through it, it didn't feel so special. But now when I look back, I guess it is a story to share. But my mom came to this country from Cuba when she was 12 years old on the freedom flights. And so she was, she did come here legally. Then she was only in this country for four years and she got pregnant with me. And so she was 17 when she had me. And we were on welfare and food stamps. I was born in Harlem and was raised for the first seven years in Washington Heights. So pretty much only spoke Spanish. So I had family, I mixed in a lot of people, you know, will just say like, oh, you're Latinx or you're Hispanic. But when you are from these very specific areas, you're like, I am Puerto Rican and Cuban. I'm 50, 50. <laughs> That's specifically what I am, how I identify. So there's so much I could say because what happened was I had a lot of, so my Puerto Rican family was in the South Bronx. And I spent a lot of time there and we pretty much only spoke Spanish. And then my mom meets a New York city police officer and he had four children, Irish Catholic family, and they lived an hour North of New York city. She marries him. And we go from literally eating rice and beans every day, walking the streets, taking a public bus, you know, just speaking only Spanish, like my lots of family from both sides of my family around me who upstate New York, where everybody was truly white. And they were pretty much police officers, firefighters. I had to learn how to speak English well. Then I had to learn how to lose my accent. I definitely did experience like, you know, teasing. Nobody was brown skinned for people who can't see me. I'm brown. So I'm not white and I'm not black, but I'm brown. And so when I look back now, and now that we're talking so much about race, I absolutely, my survival was to assimilate. And so really interestingly, my family that still lived in the city would call me a gringa, which means white girl. It's a little bit offensive, you know, like, oh, you're just like a white girl. 
but it was my way. It was my way of like, well, look where I am. And nobody looks like me and nobody was our anything. Like didn't eat the same foods that I did or anything like that. So I realize now that that's what I did. And it was, it worked for me then. I think now we, we would empower a youth in my situation or our kids to do more than that, right. To more than assimilate, but to still be able to, but like, as a kid, I couldn't really do both. I couldn't quite embrace my own culture and emerge into a, a full Caucasian middle-class culture. So I did what I, what I did best with no guidance. You know, I just did it. I think it worked for me. I think as I've become an adult, I totally can embrace both sides. Now I feel integrated would be the stage that we would call it, where like I've, I can embrace my culture, my heritage, my skin color, uh, what my hair looks like, who I am. And also be able to honestly, I feel like identify with anybody, any real race, any socioeconomic status. I've been completely poor, but you know, I didn't know it. I was surrounded with family and had a lot of love. So it's not like I knew that, but I know what welfare and food stamps is like. And then I've also known what it's like to be educated and have more privilege than that. So that's sort of my, my background. And yeah, I just knew when I was like 12, I just wanted to be a psychologist. I think that people felt very comfortable talking to me and I felt really comfortable listening. And I think I had no judgment pretty early on, like who would I be to judge? So you could tell me anything and I would just like roll with it. And I went to my high school guidance counselor and just said, what do you need to do to be a psychologist? And he was like, well, you have to go to school for a long time. I was like, okay. It was very matter of fact for me. Like, okay, then tell me what I need to do. And, and then I just did it. Like, thank goodness. I just did it. Nobody ever told me I couldn't, or it would be hard. Like the only message I felt like I got was like, you don't go into this field to make money. That's one thing you'll always hear in mental health. Don't go into this to make money. And I just remember like having a little voice in my head, in the back of my head being like, I'll make of it what I make of it. And I didn't even just really pay too much attention. And you're right. I did get a full scholarship. It's really something I'm super proud of. I'm a Bill and Melinda Gates scholar, which is a big deal because a lot of people who would get that kind of scholarship would be engineers and you know people in science and computer science and things like that. But you had to share like what your vision was. And I wanted to create at the time a blue ribbon school. I think what I really meant by that was just an educational system that was equitable, that actually addressed mental health. And this was in the nineties. So it wasn't like today we talk about mental health a lot that wasn't happening at the time. So that's how I, I think I was able to get that scholarship. And I think, you know, always worked really hard. I think that's what happens with a lot of kids of immigrants. There is a hardworking aspect to the way that you're culturalized and socialized. That's pretty heavily ingrained. Your story is amazing and you have clearly seen all sides of it. And that also surely helps you in your work and connecting with people in the way that you do. I, I love this. You made a promise to yourself that you would pay forward the gifts that you have been given in any way that you can. Can you give us a little more detail on that promise that you made to yourself and your scholarship funders? Yeah. I just feel like that is part of my mission really is to pay it forward. So I'd say that the number one way I could think off the top of my head right now, there's probably two really obvious ways is I mentor quite a few young women and I love doing that for them. So I'm also, I know I'm the author of mommy burnout, but I also run a private group practice 
And I really try to teach these women how to do what it is that they want to do paired with, you can run a business and you can do this and you can set your own hours and you can do what you want. And if you want to see clients and you want to write, or you want to blog, or you want to create a podcast or whatever it is you want to do, like, all right, let's do it. So I feel like I try to be that. And I would say probably like half the girls I mentor are, you know, minorities. And so I feel I do when I was an undergrad, I did have a great mentor. And so I just want to be, I feel like it really, all of us probably have, if we're lucky, one person in our life that really influenced us, that really shaped who we are, or gave us the confidence to believe in ourselves. And so since I've had that, I really want to be that. So that's one thing I do. And the second thing I do that I try to pay it forward is I sit on nonprofit boards that are committed to, you know, neglected and abused children, just the most vulnerable children in our communities. And I advocate pretty hard for them. I think anybody who sits on a board would definitely be like, oh, she's definitely passionate. I really care about community. That's my why. My why is it's to create community, but also not have anybody ever feel excluded. It's kind of like, that's my mission. That's like my sensitive point. It's my empathy point. It's what I say to my kids often is just include everybody, just be inclusive. And so I think those are, you know, hopefully two ways that I give back to my community. And I try to be as generous as I can with my time. It's great. There's just these young women, like when I say young in their twenties that I get to connect with and tell them they can do it and inspire them and help them. And, and I love doing it. It's so admirable. I can tell how passionate you are about it. It feels and a little funny talking about it. I'm not going to lie, but, <laughs> but I'm happy to share. <laughs> yeah. People, women need that. We, we need to have that, those individuals that will help push us forward and help us believe in ourselves. So you're doing such amazing things among that being a mentor and doing what you're doing, sitting on these boards. You also had mentioned that you have a private practice and in your private practice, you counsel numerous overwhelmed, exhausted, and lonely mothers. You mentioned in your book that you also have struggled with infertility and you have struggled with, had personal struggles with stress. So all of these issues that I've discussed are common and they plague women today are very common with the moms that are in our community. Do you feel that it's due to mother's excessive attempts to quote, do it all that we're experiencing these things? Yes. You know, it's really interesting. I just had a great interview yesterday. I got to interview someone yesterday and I have her voice in, in my head. I would have uh, before talking to her, like unequivocally been like, yes, right. We all know we are, we're socialized to believe we can do it all, all, all of those things we all know, but I will say I interviewed a researcher, a sociologist named Caitlin Collins yesterday. And the title of her book is making motherhood work. She talks about mothers in different countries. And her belief is that our, our problems here, the, I mean, of all the mothers that she spoke to, she does, you know, she's a researcher, you know, women in the United States are the most stressed out, stretched to the limit moms that there are. And she believes that's because we have such an individualistic society, she, the way she put it, like, if you want to have kids, your responsibility. If you think that you want to work and have kids, you figure it out. And she's like this notion that you're also in it alone is what's adding to it. And that matches up with a lot of what I found definitely in my book and in my own life, which I've talked about. I also have a TED TEDx talk that I share this story with, but the notion that we are in this alone 
is part of the problem. So the thought that when I have a, a dilemma, I have to figure it out. And so I have her voice in my head telling me that, but I also feel like that's why, like when you asked about what do I look for in a friend, it needs to be an authentic relationship. I need to be able to say like, I really need help. I really need support. And that there's no judgment there and they're going to get it back to me too. So all of that just falls in line with what I found in mommy burnout, which was that what we're doing right now is not the way initially, I think societies were really meant to be created. So meaning that my situation, we have no family in the state. So people move around much more because of job opportunities, educational opportunities. So we're raising kids also without extended family around. I think if 200 years ago, you would have told them that that's the way the world was going to look. They would be like, it can't be that way. Of course, you're going to have grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles in your, in your village. And it's just not like that. And it makes life very, very difficult. And as much as, you know, lots of women that I talk to will joke around about how difficult it would be if their in-laws lived like right next door or something like that. I still think though, that the effects on our whole society of not having that Partly, this is how it showed showed up. It's it's almost impossible what we're trying to do. Yes. Will you share more details about your personal motherhood journey and how it's shaped the way you relate to your patients? Yeah, definitely. I do write in the, I think, forward of the book. I talk about my struggles with infertility, which were crushing for me. So I wanted to start, I will never forget. It was New Year's Eve of my 30th birthday. And I was like, this is going to be the official start to us starting a family. And then it didn't happen happen and didn't happen. And you're like, what's wrong here? Right. So I eventually went and, um, found out that I had uterine fibroids, really big ones in my uterus. So the first surgery I had to have was not able to be done laparoscopically because my uterus was so enlarged. So I had that, it was like a massive surgery. I, and it was just, my whole uterus was stitched up put back together and they're like, well, you're going to have a 50% chance of miscarriage. It is going to be more difficult for you. You're, you can never have a child naturally. And now I don't say the, that anymore. I try not to say a natural birth, right? Cause it makes some women who can only have C-sections feel bad. So you'll never, um, you know, you'll have to have a C-section it'll be scheduled. At that point, we were scheduling C-sections two weeks ahead of a due date. It was just this whole like, oh my gosh. So after just even that surgery, that recovery went a year, still wasn't pregnant. And for me, it was so hard. And I, I'm sure people can relate to this. I also had, I was in my early thirties. I also had my dream job. I had just gone to school for 10 years and I was the clinical director of a treatment center for kids. And so I realized though, I couldn't do both. And even though sometimes people would say to me, like, you're just too stressed out. You just need to go relax. Oh, everybody should know by now. That's the worst thing you could say to somebody who's trying to get pregnant. But I will tell you, even though I, I couldn't receive that information, I do know that there's truth to it though, but I had to come at that for myself. I wound up, I had to leave my job. And so there was the beginning of like motherhood, I feel like those choices and decisions that we make, you know, for our kids. And I did. So I left, I became a consultant. So I only went up one day a week and it was working in a treatment center for kids who were severely abused and neglect. So it was a high trauma. And so I quit. And then two months later, went to Hawaii and got pregnant. I did go through an IUI. I was on Clomid. And so I did do that. So all of that happened at the same time. I would say that 
that was probably the beginning of truly understanding that mind body connection, truly feeling like, okay, I, I get this now. And this was, and I think before we were talking about this, this stuff too big, like all of the books, I just gave them away maybe last month. I don't know who wants them. They're probably old by now, but like, it was all, it seemed, it was like in the alternative section, you know, how to go through infertility by, you know, easing your mind and body and, you know, those kind of things. And so that was the beginning of it for me. So I struggled very much with the first, but even the second it was still secondary infertility issues, but it was the same thing. I went away to Costa Rica this time and got pregnant on that trip. <laughs> after a year, after a scheduled IUI was scheduled right for when we got back from that vacation. And then the third one, I did not have fertility issues, but those first two, what they did to me in terms of my psyche, my, my level of feeling like a failure as a woman, my level of just feeling really disconnected from my husband. I felt like, boy, did he really not understand what I was going through. One time I even say I ran away once, like I couldn't, I, it was like month, I don't know, seven or eight. And it just, you know, month after month of like the, you're not pregnant, he's sick thing was just the worst. And, you know, he just didn't have the right response. I don't remember exactly what he did, but I sort of remember him just being like, oh, we'll try again next month. It wasn't, it was kind of a benign statement, but I just was like, you don't get it. You don't understand. I just took my keys and just literally got in the car and left. And I went to a yoga retreat for three days. I just truly ran away. <laughs> not kidding you. I went to Boulder. That's what happens when you live in Colorado. There are yoga places that have these retreats on the weekends. Um, and I really did. I just sort of ran away. And um, a few hours later, he was like, are you coming home? And I was like, no, I'm actually not coming home for a couple of days. I need to get away. And so I really struggled. It was a big deal for me for sure. And I know some people have it worse. Some people, you know, everyone has their own story. That's just, that was my story. All of this took place while you were in Colorado. So you yes. did not have your family or you didn't have the community surrounding you. Like you were, you were speaking about earlier, the need for that. Exactly. I didn't, I didn't at all. I'm not sure. I, I was talking about it, women's group that I was a part of, and I think I was sharing it there, which was great. At that point, I don't know at that point in my life, if I feel, if I felt like I needed friends and family really nearby it felt, I don't know, it probably feels this way to other people, but such a personal process, like not even my husband to me could understand exactly because he would just say, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And like, yeah, at the end of the day, it's easy to look back and go, oh, we have three children. It did happen. But when you're in it, I mean, I remember saying, maybe I'm just going to be an aunt. Like I'm a godmother to three children. And I mean, I'm just going to be an aunt for the rest of my life. And I guess I'll just be the best aunt that I could be, you know, like that's like how down sometimes I would feel. But I think after having the baby, yeah, gosh, life would be really different if I, even now still, if I had family around that was just like, go, go to grandma's for a couple hours or a night or a weekend or, you know. It, it would make a big difference, I think. Yeah. Having, having that support system truly is huge. And clearly your husband was trying the best he could, but I, I feel like almost in those situations, there's never the right thing to say necessarily. Agreed. He was trying. He was trying.
A huge thank you to our sponsor and a great friend and supporter of Her Health Collective, Renee Avis. Renee has been such a treasure to both Cindy and I as we navigate mothering daughters. And Renee has just been such a a lifeline in that. Yes. And it's been wonderful getting to know Renee because she's got daughters that are a bit older, like my girls. And we've connected on that tutors, body image, electronics, you know, all that stuff. All the things. All the things. Renee is a licensed professional counselor and the founder of the Confident Moms Raising Confident Girls coaching program. Renee is fantastic at helping moms identify and understand the roadblocks that keep them from feeling and being confident. There are so many amazing aspects to Renee's programs, but one of my personal favorites is how she guides moms on how to listen to, honor, and take care of our own bodies. Our children, especially our girls, are always watching, and this is such an important piece for moms to tackle and is something I'm always thinking about as I know my own daughter is watching me. Absolutely. This has been really helpful for me as I've navigated my own body image issues, as well as our girls coming into the age of being more aware of their bodies. I also love that she teaches moms how to connect with their daughters in authentic ways. Pre-teenhood. This is something that can become harder and harder as our daughters get older. Become a member of Confident moms raising confident girls Facebook group. You can also sign up for a phone call with Renee to see if the confident moms raising confident girls coaching program is a fit for you. The link to sign up is included in the show notes. I'm going to toot your horn for a little bit. Get ready. You have a doctorate in psychology. You are a licensed professional counselor in the state of Colorado. You are also a member of the American Psychological Association and the Colorado Association for Play Therapy. On top of all of those credentials, you have a very long list of accomplishments, some of which include running a business, which we talked about. You're the founder and managing director of a group private practice, a best-selling author. You're a podcast host, a regular national and local news contributor, a national and international presenter, a fabulous TEDx speaker. Your TEDx talk was actually how we first discovered you. You're a digital wellness advisor at schools, and that's only the tip of the iceberg. So aside from the trips that you take, because I see that the trips are important to you, you, you have so many incredible achievements. How do you balance everything? How did you accomplish all that? Do you have advice to mothers who are attempting to follow their personal aspirations while balancing life? Yes. I'm going to give you the esoteric kind of answer and then a practical answer. Clearly, I really am completely passionate about what I do. It's just a part of who I am. And if I didn't get to do what I do, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't probably be this driven because I just feel like I, I want to talk about mental health. I want to help reduce stigma. I want to have access. I want everybody to have access. I want people to know that depression and anxiety are treatable. Like those are just really important things to me. And kids are just my passion always have been. So a being really passionate and in love with what you do. Now, some people have said, when I say this, well, not everybody is so passionate or loves what they do so much. That's fine. Everybody has to create what it is that they want to do with whatever their interests are. My interests happen to be just things that I, that I love. I love working with systems. I love working with kids. I just, those are the things I love to do. So I got lucky in that way, or I'm fortunate. So that's like the, you know, you got to love what you do answer, but then I will say 
truly the number one way that I've gotten to do all of these things, which I know is a lot, is my partner. There's no question without my husband is an equal partner. If I didn't have that support, I definitely wouldn't be able to do these things. So meaning, you know, today I won't, you know, or actually this week, I don't know if any day this week I've picked up the kids, although he drives in the morning and I pick up in the afternoon, I'll say, I have this, I have this, can you do this? And I would say he moves, sometimes it's easy and sometimes he moves mountains. We're both entrepreneurs, we're both business owners, but we did know somehow early on that we did both want to be entrepreneurs, business owners and have super flexible schedules. I know everybody can't do that. That's just the way though I designed my life. That's not by chance. That was really by design. There's some downsides to that, right? We don't, we pay for our own health insurance. When we go on vacation, we're not getting paid when we're on vacation. Like we don't have benefits in those ways and we take risks, but we were really clear even before we had kids, this is the setup of our life. The other thing is my office is three blocks away from my house and that helps a lot, right? I don't have a commute. I also would just say that part of how I do it is just relationships. So I try to maintain relationships with people I like to collaborate with. So what I'm, what I mean by that is like during the pandemic in the first month of pandemic. So between like March, well, maybe six weeks, like March 13th to April 30th, I think I did 32 segments. It was insane a lot. Like I do a lot now, like maybe one to three a week, but it was just a lot. And I'll remind myself, this is the way I can add to the conversation going on in our country as it's happening. Sometimes I'm like, I hope I know what I'm talking about, what I'm advising, because we've never been through this, but I was just relying on disaster relief kind of research to help guide what we were going to do. But I would just say that when I do have down days and I am the epitome of like, oh, I don't think I've by any stretch have reached a pinnacle. There's still things I really want to do. I still experience rejection. I still have a hard time experiencing rejection. It does keep me going that I really, I have a lot of things to do and I know I cannot accomplish everything that I want to do. So I just try to keep relationships with people. That's really important to me. And I know that I, why I say that is because I just, I need others. Like there's nothing I do alone. Everything that I do, somebody else has helped me with, or someone supported my idea, or somebody's helped me write something good, or somebody's picked up my kids for me. You know, that's how I do it all. And we are certainly social creatures, and th those relationships are our key to everything. It's so nice to hear you talk about how important relationships are and building those relationships and maintaining the relationships. You can tell that coming from a mental health expert, everyone, listen. Having relationships is really important. Having community is important. Can you talk in more detail about your personal opinion that to positively impact the mental health and growth of children, you have to work with their parents to fully engage? Yeah, I am. I'm definitely a systems person. So what that means is if someone says to me, oh yeah, my, my teen is in therapy, but I don't know, they, they go see their therapist, they come out, they can't really tell me anything that they do. I guess it's helping. You know, I hear that a lot. I just, that's not the way that I function or I think a teen can really optimally kind of get help. I think teenagers also need to know the ideal situation for me when I think about adolescent mental health is that we're not gonna stop that drive toward friends and fitting in like in their social life is most important to them. But it'd be really nice if teens could go, 
and my parents who are my backbone and help me do things. So it doesn't mean that it looks the same as when I was eight years old, what my time is going to look like with them, but that they could figure out that they can talk to their parents and that parents can not be scared of their teens. I find that a lot of parents are scared of their tweens and teens, whether it's their moodiness or they're super scared. Like if I say the wrong thing, are they going to cut? Are they going to say they want to kill themselves? Are they going to be the kid that's on social media in the middle of the night saying my life is terrible and I get calls in the morning. What does this really mean? Those are the kinds of real fears. And I think there's always been a struggle between adolescents and parents. You know, it's always been a really hard stage by most people's account, but I'd say what I see is just a ton of fear. And I think if we could work on, that's the way I work, but I also think if we could work on it from both sides, kids could get through that stage of life, still driven toward what is important to them, which is their identity development with their friends, but also not having to have such turbulent years with their parents. I think it's doable, but it would take a lot of work and some, some shifting of what we think of as adolescents. I completely agree. I've got a 10-year-old right now and an eight-year-old. One of the things I think about all the time is, oh my gosh, they're at the age now where they can remember everything. Everything is going to become a memory. How am I messing them up? What am I doing to, and it's so stressful. And you're right, very fear-inducing that I'm going to be the one that's going to cause all these issues and make them go to therapy for 30 years or whatever. So how are you creating a community of parents where they are mindful about mental health and their parenting approach? So hopefully in a couple of different ways. One of them is I, there's a class that I do that I love so much that I made it an online class during the pandemic. I would be so sad if I had to go a year without this, but it's called start with a talk. And it's, it's specifically for mothers and daughters and it's great. It's like for nine, um, nine to 13, 10 to 12 is like the, the ideal ages, but it's totally appropriate for nine or 13 year olds. And it's really about preparing them for the social, emotional, and physical changes that are about to happen in puberty and in middle school. And it's just like the sweetest thing that I do it's in person. It's usually a two day class, two and a half hours each time. And I do them back to back. And you know, it starts off with super uncomfortable girls and, and the moms are also like, I don't even know what we're really going to talk about here. And then we get into it. And then there's always a couple of girls that cry always. Um, I've, and I've been doing it since 2013 and they cry because they're grieving their childhood. They're so sad that they're transitioning from a child to a tween, you know, or a teen even. And they'll say things like, I, I still want to play with dolls. Is that okay? Or my friends don't want to do, you know, our magic games anymore. Why don't they? Because, you know, you could have a 10 year old that is starting to put on makeup already and developing and have it or had, and then have another 10 year old that would never even think about that. Just, you know, wants to play in the dirt or play with a doll or do whatever. And so there's a couple of years where we know really important stats, like a 10 year old girl, that is the, that is when her self-esteem starts to plummet at 10 years old. So we know that by 10 years old, you know, by 11 years old, 90% of kids have viewed online porn. Like it's, it's 10 and 11. We're already, we're in it. So that's why nine and 10 year olds to be thinking about socially, this is what's happening with you. This is what's happening with your friends. Yeah. 
there's a good chance that you're going to have different interests than your other friends. Emotionally, there's something called depression and anxiety. And that's how, this is how it's different from sadness and worries and, you know, body image. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Can you celebrate what's there? So I kind of go through these three modules and I do it though with the parents. So this isn't your, this isn't like a sex ed class. I don't even talk about sex. It's really about how can the moms hear this? And then therefore hopefully bring it home. If they've got a partner at home, all of them start having the language to help them navigate through what I think is the hands down toughest bridge, which is middle school, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, right? Bridging them to that adolescence. And so I think the critical juncture is right there. Nine and 10, 10, 11, like definitely by 11, really 10 is this magic sort of age where I think you have to, you have to have all those tough conversations. It it starts at all like that. You think your kid's not ready for, they need it. If not, they've got the internet in the palm of their hands and they will find out from who knows who and where. Oh my gosh. You've just scared me. I know (laughs) it is scary. It is. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. A lot happens. A lot happens in those middle school ages. So I'm really, really trying to create a community around parents raising tweens who are doing it with a lot of intention. So to me, it feels like really, really important work actually, because I know that those years are so critical. And if you can hang on and maintain your communication with your child, understand their moods, help them understand their moods. It's not easy. I get frustrated with my own 13 year old, but I give myself timeouts, right? Sometimes it just means going to the bathroom, but I give myself time because I can easily look at her and just say, that was nasty. Like you are being nasty. And then I'm like, no, she's not being nasty, but her words are, you know, I have to, they're so trying at times, you know, that I just feel like, yes, creating community around this where people can have shared experiences really could make all the difference. I think for how parents approach this really challenging time. Well, thank you. I'm grateful for your guidance during this time. I see a lot of what you've mentioned in my daughter as she's now almost 11. So I'm grateful to have you and the workshop that you put together, the start with the talk that I can resource. So what was your catalyst for starting start with the talk? Was it your own children or no, it was so long ago. So in, I started, I started, I put the, the curriculum together, did it with a friend who's not in the mental health field. But what happened was my friend, Kim went to San Francisco for six months. Her husband had to work there. So her, she had two girls, her and her two girls went there. She comes back after six months and we're like, we had, we had a dinner and we're like, oh my gosh, tell us about your travels and adventures. So this was in 2012 and she was you know, telling us some things. And she's like, I have to tell you one of the, one of the best things I did was I took this class with my daughter at Stanford and I'm like, oh, what, what was the class? And she's like, oh, it was all about, taught her about her period. And it was about puberty and you know, they just really talked to the girls about these changes that were happening to the body. It was run by a nurse. So she's talking and I'm thinking, I have this talk one-on-one with kids all the time, all the time. Girls will say to me, I think I need a bra. How do I tell my mom? You know, those kind of things. And so I just was like, Hmm, I think I could do this, you know? And so I basically was inspired by, I don't even know what the, what the class is called there, but, you know, just hearing this idea 
And I said, would you want to do this with me? Like, help me, I'll create the curriculum. You look it over. Did it come? And I, of course, put the mental health spin into it. I don't think hers had that. Hers was all about the physical, I think more so about the physical part. And so she said, yes. And I was like, okay. So we, I put it together and from the get-go, it's just been really popular. You know, I don't advertise it really or anything, but schools will ask me to come in and do it. Not during, not as part of their school curriculum because I want the parents there. And it is open to parents. I've had grandparents there. I've not had a dad come, but it is open to dads, but I haven't had a dad come, but I have had grandparents, grandmothers come, had an aunt come, I think a godmother come once, but you know, it's just a really beautiful thing. So I didn't know how it was going to translate, but when, as soon as the pandemic started, I was, I had, I usually do it in the spring and the fall and I had a spring one. I had an April one and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to cancel. I can't believe this. And so, you know, my husband said to me, why don't you do an online class? Why don't you make it an online class? So I was like, I don't know how it's going to translate because in person it's really beautiful. I have flowers and I have snacks and I have, you know, it goes mother, daughter, then a big space and it's a whole setup. So now I think that the feedback I've gotten has been so good. So I'm so happy. It seems to be translating to the couch. That's so wonderful. I'm, I'm really excited to sit down with my daughter and go through that class. I think that'll be really good for both of us. Her Health Collective is heavily invested in bringing awareness to the gaps in care for mothers during the postpartum period. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the care that mothers receive in the U.S., what would you change and why? I think for me, without a doubt, if it's a working mother, it would be you know, paid leave. And this is, seems probably like a reach right now, but really for a year, I think when we do look at, which I did, I was really interested in studying just motherhood in different countries, just in all these different scenarios, even just in different decades in our own country. And the fact that when a woman has a child, it's, she's scared to tell her boss usually. It's something that is, you know, a concern. When am I going to tell them? Well, when do you think I'll be showing? You know, most women are sitting there grappling with when will I start showing? I want to tell them before they're too suspicious, but I don't want to tell them too soon. Just the fact that they're nervous to share that with an employer and then that they worry that they're going to look weak and that they're not going to be thought of as, as strong, or if they take too much time off, they're, they're irrelevant already. I I would wave a magic wand and say that, you know, everybody can have choice, but if you had, if you gave every woman a choice to have a year paid leave, like get paid to take care of your child, who's not just your child, but now a member of our society that we want them to be contributing, healthy, functioning member of our society, and that we value it so much that we'll actually pay you to do that. I just wonder how different mental health outcomes would be for women. And I can't help but think that they would be largely, largely improved. They would feel so much more supported. You know, those stories that we all hear of women on the eve of week six, when they're going back or week five, when they're starting to have anxiety attacks going, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to leave my baby at a daycare center or, you know, whatever the situation is, I'm not ready. They're still nursing. You know, we say that nursing is helpful. Well, if you have a woman who has to pump all the time, you know, or just chooses to stop doing that before she goes, we're not valuing families. We're just simply saying we don't value families. We just value your work. 
So come and just do your work, just work yourself till you're burned out. And then we'll deal with all those billion dollar repercussions of constantly burned out employees, as opposed to really valuing families and really nurturing new mothers and babies. Yes. Yes. It is such a critical special time and you can't get it back. And that's when those bonds are formed. And, and I do, I think you're right. I think so much of the work productivity and satisfaction of employees would go up because ultimately they've bonded with their baby and they've taken care of their mental health. Agree with you wholeheartedly as, as that being such an important issue. Okay. Aside from crumbs, what is your biggest struggle currently in your role as a mom? Without a doubt, my 13 year old, <laughs> without a doubt. I think that right now, my biggest struggle is a really negative tone and vibe that she has. Like, that's so annoying. Oh, I don't want that. Oh, I don't like that. It's hard for me to not come across as like miss positivity. Like, oh my gosh, but why do you think that? That's so great. You know, and I just feel like I I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. And then I'm tired of my own positivity. I just want to be like, just quit it. You know, just, it's not fun to be around you. Like I do feel that way sometimes at night that wasn't fun. And so I'm really, uh, and I know it's not going to change any or go away anytime soon. So it's my, truly my, my biggest challenge right now is myself being the parent of a teenager. I love hearing that even though you're a mental health expert and you, you work with kids, you work with parents that you struggle too, because there's often a lie that people believe that professionals don't struggle. Dentists don't get cavities, for example, you know, it's right, but it's so nice that you shared that and that you, that you've helped our moms understand that even though you are a professional that you do struggle as well. So thank you for sharing that. If you could give every mom one piece of advice, what would you tell them? I would tell them that self-care is not selfish. I would want to give them that message from the start that because you have become a mother, that doesn't mean that you have now surrendered your entire life, all of your dreams to just solely focus on the happiness of this particular baby toddler child. That's what I see. I just see women think that that's what it means to be a good mom is this full, full on self-sacrificing. And it's such a mistake, really. It's, we have to continue to take care of ourselves for the modeling of it, for the truth of it, for our physical health, for our mental health. And self-care isn't a fancy, it doesn't have to be a fancy term. It definitely doesn't mean going to get a massage or a manicure or pedicure. It can be that, but it also could mean taking a 20 minute walk going to happy hour on a Thursday night, planning a date night with your spouse or your partner every week, things that fill you up. And for me, that changes, that can change by the month. It definitely can change every couple of years. I, you know, going for a walk with a friend right now is like a high priority kind of thing. You shift and that's okay because as just as your child is developing, so are you, your needs are different too. So I'm a huge advocate of self-care and right after that would be the connection and staying connected being connected with other moms. Not every mom has to be your best friend. You have a lot to learn. We all have a lot to learn from each other, especially moms who have younger kids can learn so much from moms who have older kids who've been there. Take advantage of those relationships, lean into them, invest in them. You get so much back from them. We have really enjoyed this conversation with you. 
you're just such a delight to sit down with and talk to. And I love hearing that you're bothered by crumbs, just like me. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Ziegler. It was wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you. You guys too. Thanks for having me and what you're doing is awesome. Thank you. I always love our time with Dr. Ziegler. She's such a wealth of knowledge and yet still manages to be so relatable. Here are our top three takeaways from our time with Dr. Ziegler today. One, there is an expectation, particularly here in the United States, that if you are a good parent, you should be able to do it all without help from anyone. Dr. Ziegler makes the point that she couldn't have gotten where she is today without the help of her partner, mentors, and friends that are always there for her. I know I wouldn't be where I am or be able to do what I do on a daily basis without having an incredible support system as well. We all need a community, a solid system of support that we can turn to in times of need and just in day-to-day life. We also need to be able to buck those expectations that we can do it all without help. Not only must we normalize asking for help, we must normalize needing help. Only then will we be able to combat the levels of burnout that are rampant in our nation. Two, no doubt about it, the middle school years are difficult. Dr. Ziegler discusses a window of time in which parents can create an open line of communication with their tween and set the stage for a parent-child relationship that will withstand the tumultuous adolescent years. Dr. Ziegler says the age 10 is a bit of a sweet spot to have these difficult conversations. This is an age in which children are beginning to explore the social, emotional, and physical changes that are about to happen in puberty and middle school. If parents start talking with them at this age, children can be prepared to navigate relationships with their friends and their own identity development, while parents simultaneously can begin to alleviate some of their own fears, setting the stage for a positive parent-child relationship long-term. Three, self-care is not selfish. I know we've heard it a million times, but it is true. Just because you've become a mother doesn't mean that you have now surrendered your entire life and all of your dreams. We have this false conception that to be a good mom means you must sacrifice who you are as a person. This simply isn't true and is a huge mistake to believe. You, your identity beyond that of being a mother, matters. We have to continue to take care of ourselves. It's also important to remember that just as your child is developing, so are you. You as a mother, you're developing. Your needs will continue to change and evolve over the years. So what once felt like self-care and what once felt like your identity may no longer serve you. Be open to exploring new avenues of self-care and identifying new aspects of who you are as a person. Hi, five friends. We had so much fun with you. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review. We love hearing what you have to say. Until next time, stay true to you.